All content published by Your Brain on Science is solely the opinions of the authors and does not reflect the opinions of any parties affiliated with them or any additional third parties. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Your Brain on Science with me, Elena. We've been talking a lot about psychedelics and substance use disorders, right? So I gave a brief kind of overview about how psychedelics are a little bit different than, you know, other well-known drugs like cocaine um, or opioids or alcohol. And then I had Dr. Albert Garcia Rameau from Johns Hopkins on to talk a little bit more kind of about that and about how psychedelics are being used as an adjunct therapy um, to help people kind of change their behavior in regards to um, some of the things that we associate with substance use. And then lastly, I had on um, Dr. Peter Grinspoon, who is a very passionate and very driven um, cannabis expert. And he talked a lot about how cannabis and psychedelics um, are useful for treating a myriad of things um, in the substance use world, as well as his own journey um, with addiction and how, you know, we need to start changing the conversation and changing the stigma associated with talking about these things and talking about sobriety and California sober and all that. So today I just want to kind of close out with a little bit of a literature review. Um, so in the research world, a literature review is essentially where you go on PubMed or Google Scholar or search the library or all the journals and kind of find um, what is currently happening in the field, what has happened before and kind of where everything's going. So it's like uh, essentially just seeing how much research has actually been done in this case um, with psychedelics and treating substance use disorders. And I'm going to focus a little bit too on, um, you know, my niche, which is opioid use disorder. Um, so with that being said, let's get right into it. That being said, let's get into it. Uh, so obviously, there's no secret that the acute effects of psychedelics are a large, large topic of interest. Hello, we have this podcast. Um, but specifically in understanding, you know, the changes that occur and how these changes can be integrated into our lives, into our mental health, and into society. Um, so, you know, we talk a lot about the different things and how psychedelics are being tested as an intervention for like several psychiatric conditions, um, as well as just to be understood. So, you know, regardless of all of these indications for substance use disorders, for um, generalized and end-of-life anxiety, for treatment-resistant depression, for major depression, for PTSD, it's still largely debated whether this acute subjective experience is relevant or whether these long-lasting positive effects um, after psychedelic administration is what's driving the therapeutic aftermath. Um, so as I mentioned, a majority of human studies have focused on depression and anxiety, but only a few actually aim to understand psychedelics as a treatment for substance use disorders, which includes the Hopkins studies on tobacco smoking cessation and some studies um, at NYU on alcohol use disorder. 
Um, so in the open label pilot study for smoking cessation, it was found that two to three moderate doses of psilocybin in combination with therapy produced higher six month abstinence rates than observed with other medications of therapy or other medications or therapy alone, excuse me. At the six month follow-up, 67% of participants were biologically confirmed as smoking abstinent. And so this suggests that psilocybin-assisted therapy may produce sustained effects in smoking cessation. Um, We talked a little bit about these studies before and about how um, there's kind of this like priming of like expectations and how um, does that influence, you know, these results. So something to think about there, but 67% as smoking abstinent at six months is a pretty big deal. Um, If any of our listeners have tried to quit smoking cigarettes, it's very hard. Um, I smoked for 10 years and now have two years cold turkey, but I truly could not have done it if I wasn't stubborn. Um, cold turkey was the way to go for me, but it doesn't work for everyone. Some people need psilocybin-assisted therapy, right? Um, interestingly, similar results were found with alcohol abstinence in a double-blind randomized controlled trial of psilocybin-assisted therapy. Um, So in this study, they found that percentage of heavy drinking days and mean alcohol consumption was decreased for the psilocybin group compared to the um, placebo control group. And this effect was found to be sustained up to 36 weeks. So what is 36 weeks? Let's do the math together. That's like nine months, right? Um, so taken together, um, these results are suggesting that psilocybin may be as efficacious, if not better, for treatment of these specific substance use disorders as compared to currently approved medications. The relapse rate for substance use disorders in general is between 40 and 60%. Um, some have a higher relapse rate than others, um, but even like current interventions only have about 40 success rate. So 67% is really good. Um, So given these promising results, I honestly am surprised that no clinical studies have really focused on opioid use disorder, um, especially with the profound increases in opioid-related deaths over the last 10 years, though these are primarily due to illicit fentanyl contamination in um, drug supplies or just dishonest um, drug selling. But regardless, that's another episode for another day. Um, There are some studies that are popping up now. I think there's a few that are registered on clinicaltrials.gov. If you're interested in those, you can go in and type in the keywords, opioid use disorder and psychedelics, see what comes up. Um, But no trials have currently been completed in this context, right? So what's interesting is that there is studies assessing data from the National Survey on Drug Use and Health, And some of these found that psilocybin was actually associated with a 30% decrease in odds in odds of developing an opioid use disorder. And so this could be maybe suggesting that psychedelic use over their lifetime may be, you know, potentially efficacious in the treatment of opioid use disorder or maybe preventative somehow um, to be determined. No one's studied that, so... That I'm not saying that's what's happening. Um, so that's kind of the clinical, very fast um, kind of summary there. Johns Hopkins researchers actually just got one of the largest and one of the first, I think, in like 50 years grants to study uh, psychedelics for the treatment of smoking. So that is something that's ongoing right now. 
and we're really excited to kind of see where where that goes and the results are published. You know, we talked about those clinical studies, but there's a lot of effort of preclinical studies, so rodent studies um, to or also non-human primates, C. elegans, et cetera, et cetera. I study mice, so I'm just going to be talking about the rodent stuff. Um, but a lot of this has been directed towards actually understanding why the psychedelics are working in these clinical trials. Uh, a lot of focus has been done with depression and anxiety, right? That's pretty normal. Um, but, you know, these studies are typically coupled with like molecular methods to look at how the function and the structure of the receptors in the brain, like the 2A receptor, um, can give insight into the effects of the compounds and maybe understand neuroplasticity a little bit better because neuroplasticity, as we've talked a lot about, cannot be measured in humans, not for sure. So this is why we kind of use animal models to get at some of those questions. And um, we found that, you know, studies across a variety of classical psychedelic compounds uh, have demonstrated that these compounds produce robust and sustained effects on neuroplasticity and different behaviors. Um, for example, using uh, phenethylamine DOI, which we've talked about, it was shown that single administration produces fast-acting effects on dendritic spine structure, so the growth of neurons, and can accelerate fear extinction. Um, so kind of uh, alter the, the fear response and how um, that goes away. And then, you know, we've also looked at um, genes and how genes actually change um, after administration of psychedelics that can last um, days after. And other studies have shown, you know, single doses of psilocybin promotes the dendritic spine growth. And this has been shown um, in different models, so in live neurons, and also in cultured neurons in a dish. And it's been shown also in um, brains from living mice. And so we found, you know, as a field, we our lab has found some of these results that I'm highlighting. But um, as a field is my, my we that I'm kind of saying here. But um, we found that there's uh, positive changes in behaviors associated with antidepressant-like activity in mice. And we found um, some similar effects with other psychedelics, including LC and DMT. So that's like a brief overview of like kind of what's been going on with like the anxiety and depression-like models. I know it was only like three sentences and I feel like I'm talking pretty fast, but it's supposed to be a fast episode. It's fine. And sorry about the noise in the background. I do live in a city, so we get the sirens. And also my cat is being very loud. Um, hopefully you can hear him. So while the focus of rodent work is widening, there is still only a few preclinical studies that are focusing on addiction-relevant models. Obviously, as I'm sure you've taken away from these last three episodes, addiction is a complex human condition um, of which, you know, different aspects can be modeled or dissected through preclinical research, but um, it is a behavioral disorder, right? It's, um, it's based in trauma sometimes. It um, has to do a lot with neurotransmitter states and emotional states, right? This is something that has a lot of different factors that we can't just model in my, model in mice. We can't model whole diseases in mice. We can only model little aspects of it. And so there are some studies um, that are pretty good at that, especially in the context of alcohol use. So um, you can literally give rodents two bottles, um, one with water and one with alcohol, and ask them, well, I guess you can ask them. They won't respond probably to you asking them. Um, but you can have them basically 
drink out of both bottles and measure their preference at different time points for either the water or the ethanol. And so across the existing studies, DOI, LSD, and psilocybin have been given um, to rodents who are um, choosing to drink alcohol or water, and they've been evidenced to actually produce decreases in the alcohol consumption um, of rodent drinking. So for example, um, in one group assessing the effects of LSD on alcohol drinking, uh, they looked at uh, they looked at the effects of LSD up to 46 days following the initial drug administration. And it was found that um, two doses of LSD actually decreased overall ethanol consumption, or alcohol consumption, and the higher dose produced a decrease in alcohol preference. And there was no changes in the overall fluid intake. So you can also measure how much water or alcohol or both that the mice are drinking to make sure that they're not just sitting around, you know, super high on LSD. They're actually still drinking a normal amount. Um, to make sure that the changes in preference aren't actually due to changes in just total fluid. And so this study was really cool. Uh, most recently, there was a study evaluating psilocybin on alcohol consumption in male and female mice, and they found a sex-specific effect in which male mice had decreased consumption and preference of alcohol following a single dose of psilocybin, while female mice displayed no changes in their ethanol or alcohol consumption or preference. Um, and they found that the changes in male drinking behavior were sustained up to day three at different doses. So interesting finding. Um, it's still a work in progress here. There's not really anything um, published, at least, that looks at opioid use disorder in mouse models. Um, there's a couple studies with um, ketamine and morphine or ketamine and cocaine. There's uh, one study looking at... DOM, which is similar to DOI in um, non-human primates, and it was found to um, decrease, I think, heroin or morphine. can't remember off the top of my head. Um, but that is to say, there is promising evidence and more research is needed. And so I'm really excited to kind of see where this field goes and, you know, what's going to happen there. So uh, right now, you know, we have these behavioral outputs that we can use. We're also, as a field, looking at um, some of the more molecular stuff. So how is serotonin um, modulating dopamine systems? Not going to get into that today because it would take me probably a week myself just to read through it all and understand enough to convey it uh, to you guys. Uh, for example, one study was looking at systemic or um, intra-VTA pretreatment with O-acetylcellulosin, which is a prodrug of psilocin, just like psilocybin is a prodrug of psilocin. Um, and systemic, for those who might not know, is just whole body administration um, into the bloodstream, and intra-VTA is going to be an injection um, straight into the ventral tegmental area, which is the brain region I mentioned earlier. And they wanted to see kind of what this drug would do. Would it... Um, would it allow animals to um, develop a place aversion or a place preference? Um, and basically what they found was that um, there was a serotonergic mechanism for compulsive and habitual response following drug-related cues and environments. And so essentially um, this systemic or intra-VTA pretreatment 
um, was able to induce a place preference, and that was not blocked with dopamine antagonists, suggesting a two-way mechanism. Uh, there's also some studies that uh, looks at opioid withdrawal and um, different cycles of drug dependence, as well as behavioral sensitization that's found with opioids, uh, but not many studies have been done in this, so um, it's still ongoing for sure. So hopefully um, I gave y'all some information today that you didn't know before and that you can take with you. I um, am really happy to end the series here today and I hope you guys enjoyed it and enjoyed hanging out with me for like four episodes and enjoyed our special guests. Um, please let us know what you think in the comments and share our podcast with your friends and your family and your colleagues and whoever else you want. Um, and check out our website, psychedelicbrainscience.com. I'm going to post a blog post on our website with some of uh, the papers that I was referencing so you guys can check them out yourselves. And as always, if you need any PDFs, please email us at um, yourbrain.science at gmail, or you can hit the little comment button on our website and send us a message directly like that. And then um, next week, me and Zarmeen are going to be back together again, unfortunately not in person, um, to bring you some info about um, where your brain on science is going to be um, this next couple months. And uh, so yeah, stay tuned on that. And... Thank you.